rather, rather perfect song that kind of encapsulates what we've been studying as we look at your creation. You are indescribable, so far beyond us. Your thoughts are so much higher than our thoughts. Your ways are so much higher than our ways. And as we begin to delve into briefly just the incredible complexity of life in this sermon, Lord, we just want to worship you. We thank you that you indeed are good. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Take a seat. Get your Bibles out. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 1, verses 20 through 23. The fifth day of creation. Then God said, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly by the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarmed after their kind, and every winged bird after its kind, and God saw that it was good. God blessed them, saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply in the earth. There was evening, there was morning, a fifth day. Now, the longer I study the creation narrative in Genesis, and hopefully uh, you're getting this from me, from Genesis chapter 1, um, the more I am overwhelmed, quite frankly, with the, the staggering power, the astounding diversity, the immense complexity, and really the infinite or unlimited knowledge of God. Let me just briefly explain these Four characteristics to you. At the University of, I'm talking about staggering power here, of Alberta, Canada, they conducted a study that showed in, in that temperate climate, there, are, there is an average of 1,800 storms in operation at any time. Now, these storms in operation at any time expand energy at the inconceivable figure of 1,300,000,000 horsepower. Did you know that the sun burns up 4 million tons of matter per second? A Canadian physicist said a rain of 4 inches over an area of 10,000 square miles would require the burning of 640 million tons of coal to evaporate that water from that rain. And to cool again, the vapors and collect those in clouds would take another 800 million horsepower refrigeration working 24 hours a day for 100 days. And yet God, by the massive power of the sun, evaporates the water, refrigerates it in the sky, and then sends it back down again as what? As water, exactly. The average farmer in Minnesota is provided free of charge by God just over 400,000 gallons of water per acre per year by the process that I just described to you, which of course is what? 
the water cycle, okay, if the annual rainfall that they average is 24 inches, it's occurring. They get 400,000 gallons of free water per acre. Now, where does all this power come from? Well, it comes from the mind of God through his spoken word. Or how about the immense complexity that we see in God's creation? We know that the earth is 25,000, roughly 25,000 miles in circumference. It weighs just over 65, almost 66 sextillion tons. It hangs in empty space and spins at 1,000 miles an hour in perfect balance. Now, this balance is critical as it ensures that we're not just jumping off the earth every time it moves. At the same time that it's spinning at 1,000 miles an hour, it is moving through space around the sun at 1,000 miles a minute in an orbit of 580 million miles. And it does so at a perfect angle set to create the seasons, which provides the crops, which feeds the population of the planet. Now, consider things that are so small that they are invisible to the naked eye, such as what? The atom, right? Atoms are so small, it takes three atoms to make up one water molecule. But if you were to take every water molecule in one drop of water, blow them up, okay, so that each molecule was the size of a grain of sand. Now, is a grain of sand very big? To our eyes, no, it is not. You would have enough grains of sand from the one drop of water to make a road one foot thick, one half mile wide that would go from Los Angeles to New York. That's how many molecules are in a drop of water, and that's three atoms in every molecule. And yet, I didn't know this when I was finding these facts out, that the atom is mostly empty space. The actual material in the atom takes up only one trillionth of the atom's volume. And when atoms combine, they only join together at their outer electron orbit. What makes matter seem solid are the motions within those atoms. Yet they're not really solid, but mainly empty space. If the average person, this is funny, had all of the space squeezed out of them, how much volume do you think you'd occupy? If you had all the space squeezed out of you, you'd be lost on the head of a pin. If you'd only occupy one one millionth of a cubic inch. So when somebody comes along and says you're nothing, they're right. At the same time, know this, a full cubic inch of that material would weigh a billion pounds. A teaspoon full of water contains a million, billion, trillion atoms. Yeah, that's pretty immense complexity, isn't it? Well, how about astounding diversity? There are, since we talked and read about birds and water and so on, there are billions of birds that belong to around 
11, just over 11,000 species of, of avians or of birds. And according to uh, the paper, the world's most abundant bird is the familiar house sparrow. Did you know that? Yep. It's a population of 1.6 billion. That's followed by the European starling, the ring-billed gull, the barn swallow, and then the glaucus gulls. I know these things. It's astounding about 949 million glaucus gulls. I know what that is. And alder flycatchers. Now, how many birds are there in the world? Well, we used to estimate there are 5 billion birds in America, but the new estimate, or new research estimates, anywhere between 50 billion and 430 billion birds on Earth. And some birds navigate, by the way, by the stars when migrating. Now, we knew that, right? Some birds do that. How do they know to do that? Well, birds raised from eggs inside a building where they have never seen the sky can orient themselves towards home when shown an artificial sky, representing a place where they've never been. I mean, birds are, are unique. A mallard can fly, your average mallard can fly 60 miles an hour. And still not get cut off at the intersection, which is great. <laughs> right? Eagles can fly 100 miles an hour. And falcons can dive at 180 miles an hour. Let's talk about fish. There are over almost 35,000 fish species. This is all incredible diversity. And they all belong to one of three main types of fish. You have jawless fish, fish that have cartilage, and bony fish. That's the largest group of fish. Now, the oceans are home to around 230,000 known species. However, because only 5% of the ocean has been explored, the total number of species existing in these oceans could be over 2 million. We just, we just don't know. We guess. And these species have special adaptations and live at different depths of the ocean. Of course, the majority are found on the ocean floor. By the way, anyone here like cod? Codfish can lay 9 million eggs. Herring can only lay 70,000 eggs. Now you know why there's so many fish and chips place <laughs> in the United Kingdom, right? It's an astounding diversity. How about this, surpassing knowledge? This is mind-boggling. Uh, during the 1990s, scientists have identified what they call the wheel of life. You ever heard of that? The wheel of life? I've heard of the wheel in the sky, but the wheel of life. Listen to this. What is the wheel of life? Well, it's found in the enzyme ATP synthase. Okay? Its structure was discovered by two scientists, Paul Boyer of the United States and John Walker of the United Kingdom while he was eating his fish and chips. That was a joke. For this discovery, they won a, a joint Nobel Prize in 1997. The wheel in this enzyme rotates at about 100,000 revolutions per second. This miniature motor is 200,000 times smaller than a pinhead. Okay, this is fascinating. It's revolving 100 revolutions per second. Every cell 
in every living thing has thousands of these motors within them. Every cell in every living thing has thousands of these motors within them. Someone estimated that your body has 10 quadrillion little motors going on right now. Let me tell you what these little motors do. Well, the ATP motor's job is to make the molecule adenosine triphosphate, or ATP, just stick with me for a moment, from ADP, adenosine diphosphate, and from phosphoric acid. It creates a synthesis which requires an input of energy. The ATP can then break down into ADP again, giving up the energy by coupling itself to another chemical process within the cell, which requires energy in order to react. So energy is created and directed, and then the products are recycled once again. This constant reoccurring cycle is caused by this little motor of which you have 10 quadrillion going on all the time in your body. In fact, Dr. Walker said, we require our body weight in ATP every day. In other words, your body is creating ATP, this energy, in your body weight every day. So these, those little motors, they have to reproduce your, enti- your entire body weight every day. In other words, we're turning over that amount of ATP, cycling that energy to keep ourselves functioning doing everyday tasks such as thinking, uh, walking, running, staying awake during the sermon, resting, or sleeping, whatever we do. And if we have a lazy day, we only use about half our body weight of ATP. If we work hard, up to one ton of ATP is recycled in a day. Now in 1993, Professor Boyard deduced by indirect means how ATP was produced. Dr. Walker in 1994 provided the first detailed picture of how the motor works by using X-rays and electron microscope to take an atomic snapshot. And then some Japanese fellow came along in 1997 with a tiny fluorescent filament attached to the electron microscope so that the motor could be seen spinning under the microscope. Now these extremely complex little spinning motors, they are brilliantly designed. Each motor is built from 31 separate proteins. And remember, this is 200,000 times smaller than the head of a pin, and they have 31 protein components. These 31 protein components are made from thousands of precisely arranged amino acids. And these little machines are producing with every turn of the wheel at some 100 revolutions per second, the necessary energy cycle to keep you alive and functioning. David, can you put up the video of what this looks like that's going on inside you right now at 10 quadrant times? And this machine, this wheel, works faster than David. This animated sequence shows the ATP synthase enzyme in operation. The animation is based on an incredible series of scientific discoveries. Only the colors show artistic license. ATP, or adenosine triphosphate, is the energy currency of the cell. 
ATP is produced by a tiny molecular rotary motor rotating it up to 7,000 RPM. These are so small that 100,000 would fit side by side in a millimeter. A current of protons drives the motor, unlike man-made electric motors which use electrons. This portion of the enzyme is where adenosine diphosphate is combined with a phosphate ion in the presence of a catalyst to produce ATP, which is then released, making way for the next cycle. A top view of the enzyme shows the sequential operation. Almost every biochemical process in your body requires ATP. Such a nanomachine exhibits all the characteristics of super-intelligent design. ATP is vital for life and many of these motors were needed before the first living cell could exist. An evolutionary impossibility. So that's what's going on inside you right now. Ten quadrant trillion times. I didn't know that, did you? Yeah, that's, that's pretty complex, isn't it? The knowledge it would take to create that is astounding. So the staggering power, the astounding diversity, the uh, immense complexity and the surpassing knowledge of God, they're on display right now within us and within everything that's living, and they are on display at creation. Now, is it any wonder then when we question God like Job, remember what Job went through, he questioned God, that God responds like this. Who is that, this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Really, what do you know, Job? Now gird your loins up like a man, and I'll ask you and you instruct me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. I don't have, we don't have that understanding. We don't have such knowledge, but God's understanding is never ending. We don't understand that, but it's beyond our thinking. But Psalm 147.5 says, Great is our Lord and abundant in strength. His understanding is infinite. And I think we can only respond humbly like Job did, because he said this to God. You ask the question, who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? Job says, surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You see, it is God's power, his diversity, his complexity, his knowledge. It is once again on display during day five of creation. The first four days of creation, God's preparing the earth to sustain life. On day five, he begins to populate his creation with life. Let's talk about life here a moment in Genesis 1.20. Look at that verse. Then God said, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. Now, in the creation narrative, this is the first mention of life, which really is the point of the sermon. Living creatures begin to populate the waters. And by the way, when you see waters, it's all, it is salt water and it is fresh water that are now teeming with, it says, swarms of living creatures. Now, some might be thinking, what about the plants and the trees? They were created on day four. They grow, they reproduce. Why aren't they called living? 
But God does not designate plants as living. Now, they are organisms that have a kind of life, but it's not a conscious life. This is why we laugh at people who think otherwise about plant life. David, we can get the video up. This is from the movie Notting Hill, 1999. This is a humorous account of when a woman is offered woodcock and cooked carrots for dinner. And yes, I looked this up as he's putting this up here. I looked this up. There is such a thing as a fruitarian. Did you know that? A fruitarian. Because I, uh, some woodcock. No, thank you. I'm a fruitarian. Hmm. What is a fruitarian exactly? Well, we believe that fruits and vegetables have feelings. So we think cooking is cruel. We only eat things that have actually fallen from the tree or bush and that are, in fact, dead already. Ah. So, um, these carrots? Have been murdered, yes. Murdered? Those poor old carrots, it's... it's beastly. You guys remember that scene from that movie? Now, what's this, I take him back because that was 1999. They clearly are poking fun at the, the kind of tree-hugging, fruitarian, you know, kind of almost like a, a vegan-type person, which, of course, you don't do that today with all the allergies and whatnot. You get to tolerate everything in our society. But they give her a name called Keziah, which is a weird name. Everyone else has normal names like William and Max and so on. Um, she's got her hair in that weird ponytail or whatever that is. Not ponytail, but pigtails and so on. And there are people that are fruitarians. They do believe that plants are living and they have feelings and so on. And they only eat the plants and, and the fruits and stuff that fall from the, the tree and are, in fact, dead already. Okay? They're not living. God does not designate them as living because they don't have a conscious. Okay? We'll get into that a little bit more here. But... As always, the creation of aquatic life, all the fishes and whatnot, happens through the power of God's spoken word. And I went through just some of the astounding diversity within in fish. They were all created just like that by God, who spoke it into existence. And we know, now know that these incredibly diverse number of living creatures, all I think it was over 35,000 species is what I said, or something like that, of fish, for example, what are they filled with? Extremely complex little machines going on right now in you and I called ATP synthase. They're going on, giving them energy to fulfill the purpose for which God designed them. Now the scriptures say that the waters are to teem with swarms of living creatures. Now what does that mean? Well the Hebrew text actually reads, let the waters swarm with swarming things. Because swarm is a word chosen here because it has the idea of movement. And this is another distinction of living creatures. Living creatures move. Right? Plants don't move. 
they have a form of life, they're able to do photosynthesis and all of that. And they're able to reproduce, but they don't move. They're not called living creatures because they don't move and they have no soul. Lord Swarm paints the picture of an instantaneous, large population of these living creatures that fill the waters immediately and they are in motion. So he speaks and they're in the water and they're moving. Now the term living is a very familiar Hebrew word, nefesh, which speaks of a soul or a being or of life. And it's used here for the very first time in scripture. The very first time of, of a conscious living things and it's to describe the aquatic life and the birds of the air. Because verse 20 continues, and let birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. And look at this very carefully. Verse 20 indicates a filling of the skies with a diversity of birds, but not as abundantly as the filling of the waters with a diversity of aquatic life. And we know that today by simply looking up in the skies. If you go, if you're able to go into the ocean and do any diving and so on, you can see there's a lot more life down there than there is up in the sky. The birds are free to fly, literally in the Hebrew it says, on the face of heaven, which can be translated, fly in front of heaven. And that's exactly what they do. Let me explain to you what that is. The word heaven includes infinite space. Can birds fly into infinite space? No, they cannot. Where do they fly? Right in the fringe, on the very face of the sky the surface of the vast heavens behind them or on the face of heaven, this is where they fly. Literally in front of heaven with the great heaven behind them. But now we come to what is the, the fun part. So I tried to make this a little bit of a unique sermon. The great sea monsters. See, catch that? God made the great sea monsters. Genesis 1, 21. You gotta ask yourself, why did the Holy Spirit inspire Moses to mention those? And what are these great sea monsters? Well, the Hebrew word is tannin, and it means a marine or land monster, i.e. a sea serpent. If you study the Old Testament, you'll find several Old Testament references to sea creatures, great sea monsters. There's Leviathan, remember this one? A massive, powerful sea creature referenced by God. Can you draw a Leviathan with a fish hook? Some have described it as an alligator or a crocodile, uh, but they're not in the sea as much. The best guess is that Job is describing, or his friends are describing, some kind of dinosaur. A massive sea-going monster. Job also mentions the serpent of the sea, or the sea serpent here in Job 7.12. Am I the sea or the sea monster that you set a guard over me? Then there's a great fleeing serpent, Rahab. God says he quieted the sea with his power, and by his understanding he shattered Rahab. By his breath the heavens are cleared. His hand has pierced the fleeing serpent. So we see all of these references to these great sea monsters in the Old Testament. Why does he bring it up? I mean, why would the Holy Spirit inspire him to put that in this creation account? Well, I think the reason is this. See, in ancient mythology of the East, there have always been these very bizarre kind of fabricated legends about sea monsters. 
The ancient pagans believed that the gods were sea monsters. You might remember the story where the Ark of the Covenant was kept with the Philistines next to their god, Dagon. Remember that? And, and, and the, the image of Dagon fell down before the Ark of the Covenant. Remember that? Well, Dagon was a, a, a Philistine god. It was half man, half fish. Uh, they wrote epics about these great sea monsters, the, the, the cultures. And it began to influence that whole part of the world where they saw the sea monsters as gods and rebellion against good gods. In the case of Israel, the sea monsters, or the gods, are rebellion against the creator God. And so when the children of Israel came to the land of Canaan, led by jo- um, Joshua, they came across the Canaanite legends about the gods taking on the form of these great sea monsters. And so the sea monster then became kind of a symbol of evil and the great enemy of God. They were somehow a supernatural deity that rose up against God the creator. This would have been in existence in the minds of the people at the time of Moses when he wrote Genesis. Theologians believe that the Holy Spirit prompted Moses in recording the inspired account of creation to write down that God created these sea monsters. They aren't symbols of false gods or symbols of evil They're creatures that God made just the same way he made all the rest. And like all of his creation, what does he say about them? It's good. They're good. So far be it for God's people to suppose that the sea monsters are some mythological forces of evil in opposition to the true and living God. They are as natural as anything else God created in his word in order to fulfill his will. That's why it says in Psalm 148.7, Praise the Lord from the earth, sea monsters in all deeps. I put that up there, yes. See, the poet is calling in this psalm all created forms, even the sea monsters, to praise the Lord. And finally, we see the fact that God creates birds and fish after their kind, or after its kind. God created everything that lives in the water at the same time on the same day. He created everything that flies in the air at the same time on the same day, and he created them after their kind. These fish, these birds, they are fully grown and mature. They did not evolve over millions or billions of years. And then we see one of the first blessings, the blessing of reproduction. Verse 22, God blessed them, saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas, that birds multiply on the earth. I want you to see this from the very beginning. This is the first time you read that the ability to reproduce is a blessing from God. And this is the consistent message of the Bible. What does Psalm 127.3 say? Behold, children are a gift from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. To be able to reproduce is a blessing. Remember that. Because to my knowledge, humanity or mankind is the only created living species that considers reproduction an affliction. No other created species systematically kills their offspring. No other, every living 
creation welcomes and cares for their offspring, and this is by God's design because it is a blessing. We, humanity, have turned a blessing into an inconvenience or even worse, a curse. So from the very beginning, reproduction is a blessing. But when you ponder the miracle of reproduction and how God created every species in creation from the most small, tiny, microscopic creation all the way to the largest land mammals and sea-going creatures and all the reproductive processes that is encoded in the DNA of every creature and all the information put in every single cell of every single creature reproducing its own kind. And it's just mind-boggling. And so by now you probably know that all living creatures are complex machines. The scientist who discovered complexity is named von Neumann. He attempted to create the first complex machine. And it was named a von Neumann machine. And by complex, von Neumann identified three characteristics that make a machine complex. They're self-sustaining, self-repairing, and self-reproducing. By self-sustaining, I mean they have within them the capability to sustain their own life. By self-repeating, I mean they fix themselves as they go. And by self-reproducing, I mean they can create more of themselves. Is there any complex machines in this room? Yes, everybody here. Every human being is a complex machine. But mankind, with all of our technology, all of our science, has never been able to make a complex machine. Well, why? The complexity would leave the machine in need of constant repair, and the machine could not keep up with the self-repairing process, which is why we have to buy a new computer every three or four or five years. What happens to them? It's a complex machine to an extent, but I am always, it seems like, contacting David or Frank because something has gone wrong with the computer. And folks, every single cell that exists in a complex machine, and, and that's in you and in me, that is self-sustaining, self-repairing, and self-reproducing. This amazing capability, reproduction, is placed in every little DNA strip in every cell of every creature. And do you know why that is, by the way? Because God has blessed the living creatures with the ability to remain. It's an assurance of permanence. And we now know, because we have the end of the Bible, Revelation tells us what's going to happen. Well, this world will eventually be destroyed. A new heavens and a new earth will come, and we will populate that with all the other creatures. Because the lion will what? Lay down with the lamb. The baby will be able to stick their hand in the adder's den, not get bit by the snake. How are they going to continue on? They're going to be fruitful. They're going to multiply. They're going to fill the earth. They're going to remain. That's the blessing. And that is our blessing. We're able to do the same thing 
as well. So incredible power, incredible diversity, incredible complexity, incredible knowledge that God just has put on display in his creation. And yes, folks, whenever you see yourself in the mirror, whenever you see in any individual, think of all of that goes into that individual. And I've just scratched the surface of some of that. Think of the complexity, the diversity, the power and the knowledge. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for our time. Thank you that, that we haven't gotten to the best part yet. That's the creation of, of, a, of a people that are in your image. That you give dominion over this, your creation. And I think of all that it requires, or just a portion of what it requires to make a human a human. And that you just know everything and spoke it all into existence. And you are so far above us. I mean, what is man that you even consider us? And yet you bless us. You indeed exalt us. And you make us kings of your creation. And we praise you for that. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, have a great Sunday. Enjoy it. Rest. Give those 10 quadrillion little machines going on right now a break. All right? God bless you. Amen.